0: Hey, I'm Emma Smith, editor at Lighthouse Now, and this is Offbeat, our new podcast where we follow strange and surprising stories wherever they lead us. For our first episode, I'm joined by reporter Evan Bauer.
1: We're trying something a little different. Instead of reading our words, you'll hear our voices as we bring you a series of audio stories over the next several months.
0: So let's begin. Welcome to episode one, Finding Barrelman. Man. day to do this. Our story begins just outside Lunenburg on the mudflats near Battery Point. A longtime resident brought me, though. along with my recorder and only pair of rubber boots, to the last known location of a 40-year-old barrel. It's the only physical evidence left of an adventure that people are still talking about.
2: Now, how do we do this?
0: That's Alan Wilniff, my guide for the day.
2: I'm just trying to think of the easiest way down to the shore.
0: And hey, Evan, you were there too.
1: There was a storm the night before. Yeah. It was minus nine, so the mud flats were frozen. Before we set out, Alan hauled out this five-foot-tall walking stick from the back of his trunk. I forgot to bring my gloves.
0: He's never prepared for... You're um, not wearing gloves.
1: <laughs> no. I want to see what I'm made of, you
2: we're know? We're revoking your Canadian citizenship right here now. <laughs> That's a plain foolish.
0: At this point, you may be asking, all right, why are you looking for a barrel? Well, the story goes like this. One day in the spring of 1973, there was a bit of a frenzy on the Lunenburg waterfront. Picture news crews, a gathering crowd, all surrounding a tall, mustachioed man and his barrel.
1: His mission was simple, sail from Lunenburg to Bermuda inside this oversized barrel he'd built himself.
2: I think it was a, you know, kind of a local celebration, and he didn't make it very far. I think he got out here in the
1: harbor. This is how a lot of people remember that day. A mysterious, poncho-clad man came to town, constructed an oversized and ill-fated barrel to set sail on the sea, and, after much anticipation and fanfare, it was a near-instant failure.
0: Alan remembers it making it as far as the mouth of the Lunenburg Harbor. In fact, I learned this whole story from Alan. He posted about it on Facebook more than a year ago, which prompted an outpouring of comments from others sharing their memories of the barrel man's adventure.
1: One commenter remembered a division in the town over whether the barrel man's mission was brave or laughable. Was he just an eccentric, a novice seaman in way over his head? or an expert craftsman who had everything under control?
0: Forty years later, people are still trying to decide, so I started looking for the barrel Man with the hope of coming closer to that answer ourselves. Oh. Turns out he wasn't that hard to find. Yeah, I'm doing a story about the time you um, built a barrel and we're gonna go sailing.
3: Oh yeah, that, that, that had an unfortunate end.
0: This is George Hepp.
3: From Nova Scotian. Eighty two years old. What else can I say?
0: That's great. Uh When we found out where George lived, we asked freelancer Sarah Kester to pay him a visit. Originally from Bridgewater, George now lives with his wife in the woods of Rodney, Ontario. People may remember him for the barrel, but George is just a guy who builds things. The house he lives in, a plane that's parked in a hangar out back. But in 1973, he was working as a fisherman in Lunenburg, looking for a way to earn money for a university in Newfoundland.
3: I've been reading this magazine about the Cuban refugees trying to get to Florida, and one fellow even tried to go on an ordinary apple barrel, you know? I thought, that takes an awful lot of nerve to to do something like that. But I thought, what if the barrel were bigger?
1: The first thing people tell you about George is how he walked into town in a thick, grey poncho, a rope tied around his waist like Friar Tuck. He wore these knee-high leather fishing boots and pulled his mustache into two sharp points with wax.
0: Even in a port town in the 1970s, George stood out. One of his friends told us some may have taken offense to his wild appearance, but the French just thought it was really cool. George was a member of the Air Force, an observer on a Russian vessel, and learned navigation from his time out at sea.
3: Just self-taught, you know? I suppose a lot of the old people in the old days, that's the way they did it too. They went all around the world that way.
0: With that kind of experience, maybe spending weeks on the ocean in a barrel wasn't such a crazy idea. To make that barrel, George started traveling around the South Shore with his friend Tom Putstack for supplies. First, they hitchhiked toward Chester Basin to a barrel maker who mostly made apple barrels, but he wasn't interested in making one big enough for George to fit inside.
4: So that kind of changed George's plan.
0: That's Tom. He lives in Nebraska now, but he's kept in touch with George and still visits Lunenburg every summer.
4: Which meant we hitchhiked back down to Lunenburg and went to see uh, Vernon Walters, you know, the blacksmith there uh, on the harbor. They
1: needed a place to work and found one in an old ice house on the Lunenburg waterfront. The two warped the wood themselves in a three inch deep pool of water bolted them together, and before long had an eight-foot barrel that could float, not only with George, but, as they found out in a celebration the day he launched it, up to nine of his friends inside.
0: So is that it
2: right in front of us? I think. Last time I was here, I didn't see it that clearly. It may have been actually that it's been exposed a bit more this year.
0: We saw the barrel a ways off in the distance, and as we got closer, you could see the grass growing up between the wooden boards. There were nails sticking out here and there. While much of the wood had rotted, the metal rings were still visible. At one time, they held the whole thing together.
2: It actually did look like a barrel, and then with uh, the bow, you know, he built a bow on it. And there's only, you see how much room there is?
0: I know, like that's the thing, you're trying to imagine how someone could actually fit in there, but that's pretty big. And food,
1: and water. Long before the barrel ended up here, George built it to be about eight feet long and four feet wide, not including the bow and the rudder. There was a hatch in the middle big enough for George to get inside, but not big enough, he said, to get in wearing a life jacket. It was designed so George could rig the sails and steer from inside the barrel.
4: I figured that you know the boat would probably make four or five knots you know, in a good wind. Uh, George figured a little faster than that.
0: That brings us to launch day. What many either didn't realize or don't remember is that the barrel wasn't done. The owner of the ice house wanted rent, so Tom and George were forced to bring the work in progress out onto the dock.
4: They pulled it out to the end of the wharf and pulled it off the wharf into the the harbor and uh, what a splash.
0: Was he worried at that time? Like, was that a oh, well, reckoning? Oh, well, you time? know, I mean,
4: uh, we had... Cocked it very well. Uh, I mean, there was, there was no way that any water was going to get inside. It, it was a, uh, a fully functional boat at the time.
3: It caused such a commotion. Every kid played hooky to watch this, you see. Uh, business stopped. Everybody wanted to watch this launching, you see, as if it were a big thing like the Blue nose or something, you know.
0: The barrel still needed sails, but the two friends needed more money to finish it. So George did what he always did went back to sea. In the meantime, the barrel was moored off the shore near Battery Point.
1: The whole time, Tom and George were debating the journey itself, what he'd need, how he'd store his food, how long it would take. Bermuda is directly south of Lunenburg, and George suspected it would take him about three weeks to get there.
0: To get an idea of what the journey would look like, I rode a fair wind five blocks down from my apartment in Lunenburg to the office of Captain Daniel Moreland.
5: Uh, Daniel Moreland, Lunenburg. March, whatever it is, you probably got the date.
0: (laughs) As wild as it may have seemed, Moreland, who's captain of the tall ship Picton Castle, told me in terms of pure buoyancy, it doesn't get much better than a barrel.
5: But a barrel, apart from not being a particularly good sailboat, is a very seaworthy thing. It's like a cork. So as long as you have enough food and water and the wind's going where you want to go, you'll get somewhere. Why you want to do it isn't... That, that's a personal thing, um, which I could never begin to answer.
0: Part of the journey would involve crossing the Gulf Stream. In a matter of hours, the temperature would increase up to 20 or 30 degrees. You can imagine that'd be an issue when stuck in a tight, constrained area.
5: You know, barrel, it's not going to be intrinsically unsafe. It's just going to be intrinsically uncomfortable. If you want to know what it's like, get inside your dryer and turn it on. You know, put on your foul weather gear and go inside your dryer and turn it on, or your washing machine or something. be like that.
1: Tom had some concerns about the trip that George didn't share. For one, he tried to encourage him to wear a helmet to protect his head in case he hit it during rough weather.
4: He was more concerned with, you know, weight. If a helmet weighed uh, two pounds or three pounds, that's a couple of days' food, you know. I've learned long ago not to try and talk George out of things that, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, he's decided upon.
0: But the truth is, there's a certain level of danger in just about any sea travel. With George's fishing background, Moreland has a hard time believing he didn't know what he was getting into.
5: Mr. Heb would uh, not be unfamiliar with the, you know, the challenges of being at sea. So this, it's it's usually landsmen that do this, and uh, so he brings a lot to the table. You'd have to ask him what his desires are, but it's sort of like mountain climbing because it's there why would anyone climb a mountain? You can see it perfectly well from down here, but no, it's there. They want to go climb the mountain. And I can't can't second guess that.
1: The story took on a life of its own after the launch. A Chronicle Herald article from May 7th, 1973, put it this way. Nova Scotia has figured in many sagas of the sea. The latest chapter in the long and fascinating story very well may tell of a journey by barrel to Bermuda.
3: That pretty well ended it because... I was now pressed in by a lot of tourists, and uh, (laughs) the whole spirit of the thing kind of wilted. Because I I don't work well in public, I I do much better in private.
0: While in the newspapers, George became a romantic caricature of life on the sea, to some people in town anyway, he became something else.
4: Those days, the Dolphin Tavern was pretty well the only place in town where you could drink.
0: That's Tom again.
4: And uh, I had many a uh, discussion there with fellows, people who thought it was crazy and people who thought if anybody could do it, George could. You know, could he make it? George, uh, George a pretty determined man. <laughs> you just don't know how determined that man can be when he gets an idea in his head, you know.
0: George never got the chance to prove either side right or wrong. He broke his back while he was out at sea. Meanwhile, the Coast Guard cut the anchor, and the barrel landed on the beach past Battery Point. Eventually, getting pushed up past the dunes to where it sits now.
3: That settled it right there. I had—I couldn't walk. Now I was on crutches, and for eight years off and on these crutches. So I believe, or I suspect, that the the broken back was an act of God to stop me from doing something that might have killed me. Uh, sometimes a man does foolish things of regrets later in life, and that's one of them.
2: Yeah, how Canadian is this? This is so beautiful.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful car. Having accomplished our goal, we took a nice, long look out at the ocean and followed our guide back to the road. By the end of the hike, Alan and I realized we might be distantly related.
2: There. Found a shipwreck and a relative all in the same day. Hey, life on the south shore.
1: We found the barrel, we spoke with George, but in the process, we dug up a story that the man behind it just wants to forget.
0: Yeah, and it seems sad that this is what's left. Finding the barrel, half covered in snow like the carcass of some dead animal? I mean, that's how George describes it now. It's a story that's painful for him to revisit.
3: I wish I hadn't done it. I wish I hadn't done it.
0: Do you think you would have felt differently if you had been able to finish it?
3: Probably. I never thought of it. (laughs) I really never thought of it. I, I went away and hid in the bush. I felt so beaten by the whole thing.
1: Working on this story, it became clear that no legend that had formed around George could live up to the man himself. He's a carpenter, a seaman, a poet. He actually wrote a poem that was published in the Progress Enterprise around that time. He called it The Barrel Man's Lament. It's not a happy poem.
0: But it's comforting to know George transcends the story of the barrel. We've been keeping in touch by phone since I first called him in January. When we spoke last, he told me about all the jobs he's had in his 82 years, and more about the plane he built and crashed. The plane was well made, he assures me, the pilot was just a little rusty. His home in Rodney uses rainwater he collects on the roof and he's wired the whole place himself. Most afternoons, you'll find him outside chopping wood. Now he can spend his days making his creations on his own terms, just like he did back in the ice house before the barrel ever saw the light of day. Yeah.
2: It was certainly a lot of fun at the time, I think, for the community in general. Yeah, I was kind of surprised at how much people remembered, you know, when I posted the picture. But that was kind of fun too. I love it when people tell, uh, you know, local stories. And then you, uh, you put uh, two and two together and realize who's who, and, uh, yeah.
0: And even though George might not look back on the barrel as fondly, He's finally ready to give it a name.
3: But I think right at the moment, I probably would have called it Heb's Folly.
0: Heb's Folly?
3: Folly, yeah. Foolishness. Yeah. Heb's Folly. That's what I think I would have called it.
1: This episode was produced by the Lighthouse Now team. Keith Corcoran, Michael Lee, Brittany Wenzel, and Gail Wilson. Our logo is by Helen Dalton.
0: Music and editing by Evan Bauer. This episode was written by Evan Bauer and me, Emma Smith. Thanks to Dave Stevens for his continued guidance and help with this episode, and thanks to Alan Wilniff and Captain Moreland, and everybody else who spoke to us for this story. A special thank you to Tom Putstack and George Hebb, who were so very gracious with their time and memories. Hey, Emma here again. We'll have another episode in about a month, so keep an eye on our website, lighthousenow.ca, or subscribe on iTunes, and feel free to give us a rating while you're there. It'll help other people find our show.